welcome to episode 101 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Sarah Morgan. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Sarah Morgan of Routine. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sarah, your title at Routine is the Head of Nutrition Innovation, which to me is a very interesting term because it almost feels to me like we're going backwards, we're, we're uninnovating and trying to get back to the way things used to be versus trying to make more processed and more easy. Like we already did that and that's caused some issues and now we're trying to innovate backwards. Is that a correct sentiment, do you think? Yeah, I think it depends on you know how we define that. But absolutely, I think my goal is always to connect the scientific substantiation in a creative way to make it really understandable and approachable for people to take steps towards better health. Hmm, interesting. And how did you start to to come into all of that? Like how did what was was there a moment that something clicked for you or was it just through your education? How did you get here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um I come from a family of cardiologists. I was planning on going to medical school. I worked in a hospital on a neuropeds and trauma floor. And I realized I didn't want to plug holes in a wall that was falling down with basically this idea of symptom management. And it's really for me where I discovered my passion for foundational health, root cause medicine, I guess you could say. And I started, you know, really digging in and realizing, gosh, the foundational pieces of our health come from nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, movement, all these things that we kind of know a little bit about. And it was really the explosion of also our discovery of cell biology and all the really cool things that were happening with genetics and um, what we understand of the inner workings of cells and biochemistry. And so I decided to pivot, lean into that, worked in clinical practice for a while and really got to see magic happen when what I like to say is we figure out the really key puzzle pieces and we put them together to tell a true health story that really moves the needle in the direction somebody needs to. And so my clinical practice really served as a launching pad for innovation and problem solving. And um, that's where I got into um, being an entrepreneur, thinking about creative solutions and really doing innovation in the space. It's interesting yet almost disappointing to me that someone like yourself coming from such a medical background and going through the the, the ringer of trying to become a, a doctor and those things, that the obvious and first thing was not diet, exercise, lifestyle, stress management, these things. And it's it's almost like you have to realize that on your own, take that entrepreneurial approach to your own personal development and your own education to sort of find out things that we all have known as humanity for hundreds or thousands of years. And it's it's disappointing to me because it's just, it's so simple, yet we need so much education or re-education, perhaps is a better word, to to get back to these things in, in regular life, right? Yeah, and I think you're right. It's, you know, if we look at humanity, I think we go through cycles and we're kind of in this um, phase, I think, of coming back to these foundational principles and we're supporting them with this more sophisticated science, which again, it's like, hey, science now knows, right, that light exposure and the amount of luxes you get at different times of day and, you know, all this really cool stuff about circadian medicine, for example, is, you know, now we, we know the whys behind the what, but I think we've been doing the what for so long as humans. 
Yeah, it's like religions and ancient cultures and Aboriginal cultures across the world have these practices of nutrition and times of the year where they eat this food or that food or they have these routines. And it's like, okay, we we didn't call it a scientific word at the time, but now we discover, oh, intermittent fasting. Okay, we call it a cool word that we call like prayer. It's like, okay, great. But, you know, meditation and mindfulness and we just attach these like more scientific terms. And as we learn things, I guess it's better to know about why we're doing the things that we're doing rather than just do it because that's the way things have always been done. So it is an interesting exploration, but it is funny to, to kind of like lay it out and think about, hey, we've, you know, just do all the things your grandmother's been telling you and you'll probably yeah. be okay. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, there's a little bit more of an evolution to speak to that for a moment of the science is good because it allows us to be more precise about even these healthy routines and rhythms that we talk about, that we can really leverage health information, this data, and use it to understand in a specific time frame what somebody needs for their precise body, their genetics, their you know place that they're at within their health journey that is more specific than maybe the foundational you know ancient rhythms that we know about. The specificity is an interesting part that I think we should start to dive into because so much of us are, you know, we, we have so much abundance of, of food and resources and things available to us, yet with all of the stuff that we have, we're still not that healthy. So it's like this overfed, undernourished kind of concept, which is which is strange to think about, like to try and explain that to someone who lived 200 years ago, they would not understand. Like, what do you mean you have too much food and you're less healthy? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. what's, what's your take on that whole like underfed over or overfed undernourished? Um, I think concept. you nailed it. I think what we see now in our modern world is that we've moved away from a whole food diet, right? So we have all this new technology. Our agricultural system has shifted over the last hundred years where the abundance and the overfed is of really the wrong things that we're consuming that are readily available. They're the cheap things versus the whole food diet, things that are unprocessed are more expensive, a little bit harder to come by, especially in areas of the world where there are food deserts. And so what's happened is we have this overabundance and we're overfed on macronutrients, right? And it's the processed versions of those or the cheap versions. I like to call them cheap carbohydrates. You know, they're the toxic fats that have been processed and maybe proteins that, you know, are from factory farming that aren't really the best, not only for us as humans, but also for the animals and the planet. So that's the overfed side where we have this tipping of the scales in that direction. And then undernourished is what happens when we I would like to say cheapen our agricultural system is we strip our food of all of the micronutrients and things like vitamins, minerals, uh, polyphenols, all these phytonutrients that we've now known and we can substantiate in the scientific literature are really critical for our health and wellness as humans going all the way down to the cellular level that we know how these micronutrients interact. And what happens is while we might not feel hungry, so to say, with our you know hunger, and that even can get altered um, with overeating these macronutrients and being um, deficient in micronutrients, what happens is our bodies really don't have these pieces of the puzzle, again, these micronutrients to fuel health and wellness. And so we start to see chronic disease creep in, and it's happening earlier and earlier where actually children 
are starting life more chronically ill. And then we start to see people in their 20s and 30s have health problems that used to be more common in our 60s, 70s, and 80s. So we're really reducing our health span. Um, when we think about lifespan, where we're, you know, we've had this big push of promoting living longer. And the problem is our health span, we, we see more of a gap where people are not healthy longer, uh, which leads to less uh, quality of life. I'm only 28 and I see it in people, you know, friend group and extended friends and whatnot, where I don't recall anyone when I was a kid who had dietary issues. There was, you know, the odd kid in the class who had a peanut allergy, but that was it. Everyone could eat everything. Everyone felt good. And like, you know, I hear my grandparents say, oh, when I was in my 20s and I was in my 30s, I could do everything. I could work 90 hours a week and break my back all the time. And I don't know very many people in my age demographic who can do those things now. In fact, I probably know more people who have some type of digestive issue or health issue caused by caused by some sort of chronic lifestyle deficiency than people I know who don't have that. And that's quite that's been a quite surprising yet sad realization for for me to make. And I think some of it as we start to, you know, circle back like this I, I call it like the fake health food where it's like it's something that you know claims to be low fat or high protein or something but it's made in such a way that's like sure you know we're we're hitting that macronutrient thing and but it's not really doing us all that much of a favor it's kind of like that if it fits your macros crowd where it's like oh you eat whatever you want so long as like you're within your calories you're good and it's like hmm maybe there's a little bit more here than just the calories like we've solved that issue we don't have like hunger in in the west and whatever anymore like there's more here and we should strive to be healthier now that we have the ability to do so. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, it's interesting too, when we look at the story of people who are sicker, like you're talking about digestive issues, all these different things. One, I think when we look at our agricultural system and we look at just the world we live in, um, this gets into a little bit of environmental medicine that we have a lot more exposure to environmental toxins, to things that really do require more of our bodies and put more of a stress on our bodies at a younger age. And if we talk about children going all the way to, you know, babies being born, children having more health issues, that's really connected to mothers and pregnancy, what's happening, what they're exposed to, their stress levels, their environmental exposures, and how that sets up somebody to, in terms of gene expression, their microbiome, you know, the little bacteria that regulate a lot of our human health. So, you know, as we, again, the science is substantiating more about why we do what we do with some of these basic foundational pieces of our health. I think it's powerful for us to understand things like, you know, if you have more environmental exposures, more toxins, you actually have a much bigger need for these micronutrients for your liver, for example, to process and detoxify those things out of your system properly. I want to try and get into what more specifically some of those stressors are to identify them because when we say the, these kind of you know environmental stressors, it means almost everything. And so we can say the blanket term like, oh, everything is killing us. And I, you know, <laughs> I partly believe that to be to be quite true. Yet what can we do about that? There's not, I can't just change my entire environment. I'm not about to, you know, move out of the city and live in the woods by myself with no cell phone or no electricity and no anything like that's not going to happen. So how do we get around doing that? But let's try and identify what some of those, those stressors are just so that we can help people be 
be aware of what it is in our day-to-day lives that are actually causing us more stress that we need to try and offset. Yeah. And I here's the hopeful message with what you just said too is one, we all have stressors. So as we identify those, you know, that's a common denominator for all of them. And the other thing to remember that's very hopeful is the human body is incredibly resilient. And while we face different types of challenges in our modern world, we can absolutely still go after optimizing our health span and just optimizing our overall health where we can still feel well. So stressors, where do they exist? If we think about and break down the categories, I would say one is physical stress. And physical stress would, in in my definition, also include these environmental toxins that we can be exposed to. Physical stress can also be, um, you know, uh, not sleeping well enough, or physical stress can be how we actually build muscle mass with weightlifting. So not all physical stress is bad, um, but that's where one of the areas that you can have stress comes from. Another one is mental stress, which would be psychological. And what's really interesting in the scientific literature is this is the stress that we're most maladapted to deal with as humans. And it's where most of our stress happens in our modern world. And then we also have um, emotional stressors, right? When we think about mental health, that can also, you know, connect to psychological stress, um, but a little bit different, I would say, in terms of how we define that um, when we look at things like trauma and what that actually does to even our genome and our physical body uh, is an interesting situation. And then when we look at stress and we define it, I think the other thing that's really important is timing and time of the stress. So sometimes we have stressors that are acute that, for example, um, you know, we stress ourselves out with a cold ice bath and that's actually therapeutic or we stress ourselves out with uh, weightlifting or we have maybe, you know, an infection like COVID or influenza that's for a period of time, but it goes away. Um, and those can be positive and negative the body can tend to, you know, come back to that homeostatic balance with acute stressors. The problem is when we move into chronic stress that seems to be unrelenting and it goes on for a period of time. That's where we can see the body start to really succumb to um, this altered stress response. And we start to see symptoms and different health conditions pop up over time. Is there any physiological difference between what we might consider a good stress versus a bad stress? Or is it more that the good stress is like within our control? I jump in an ice bath, I get out, I'm back to normal versus a bad stress is like I have a terrible day at work, it lasts for three days and I have no control over it. Yeah, that is, I love that you bring that up. And I think there is this piece of the um, psychological side and the physiological side of understanding if there's hope. And there's a lot of animal studies. This is kind of unethical to do in humans outside of what we actually experience. But when they do rat studies and they give rats the ability to, um, a lot of them are swim tests where they're kind of swimming through water. And if they get this um, break where they pull them out of the water and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I was almost going to go under and not make it and drowned. And then I was given this break they go back in, they have the ability to keep swimming like three to four times longer than they would without the belief that they're going to be able to make it through. So I think the control piece and the psychological belief system, like I'm going to be able to get through this 
I can, you know, like rise above is absolutely a key piece of how that stress impacts our physical body and impacts our emotions, impacts our mind. So that I think is one of the ways we really survive as humans through chronic stress, what we're believing. We obviously have to do things physically too, to support ourselves in that process. But I think it's the, the make or break of how much, you know, stress is going to impact you as your belief system as you go through it. And also your support network of your community and people like the messages that you're telling yourself and others are telling you as well. It's probably a lot to do with, with unknowns then as well. Just kind of furthering that, that thought, like to bring it back a little bit to what you said about the pandemic that we're, you know, almost through sort of kind of <laughs> like there was a lot of stuff where, yeah, fingers crossed there were for, for in the beginning, especially there were a lot of unknowns. And so we didn't know anything. We thought we were all going to die. We had no idea what was, what was going on. And that caused a lot of stress for a lot of people and financial stress and like a whole host of different things. And rightfully so. Yet, whereas something like, again, the ice bath is like, I'm going in there. I know that I'm with my friends, like nothing, like I'm nothing bad is going to happen to me. I'm going to be cold for a couple minutes and then I'm going to be, I'm going to be good. But that unknown aspect has been, has been tough. And so it's hard to build up resilience, which is what I think is the biggest part of exposing ourselves to ice baths, workouts, you know, hard physical stressors within our control because you build up that resilience muscle. And so you know that you have something to pull from to come out of it on the other side okay. Whereas if you've never been through those things or had a relatively easy life up until a pandemic smacks you in the face, it's pretty hard to pull from something within yourself to be resilient through that time. So that's why I think in my personal belief that it's very important to expose ourselves to these things in a, in a safe fashion, of course, but regularly so that when real life stuff does happen, you've got some experience to pull from. It's so well said. The unknown, I think, is uh, absolutely the biggest thing that can make or break us. And I would also say resiliency is always the goal, right? When we think about health, like it, we're none of us are ever going to achieve perfection with our health. And that's what you're setting yourself up to do. Like most likely you're going to fail because life happens to all of us. And we have all these variables that are hard that we experience as we go through life. So I agree this training of resiliency over time is the biggest way that you can be successful with your health span, you know, as, as you go through every decade of life. Another point you just alluded to there that I want to kind of come back to is that we can't control all the things. So we do as much as we can, even with these environmental factors, you try and drink clean water, wear clean clothes, use clean soaps and clean products. But you know, there's some, um, element of the world around us, you walk outside down the street, you're breathing in car exhaust and like you can't control every single aspect. And so we kind of control what we can and, and do the best that we can within the things that uh, we can control in our day-to-day life and everything else. We just, you know, cross our fingers and, and, and hope for the best, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, there, I was just at the American Nutrition Association. They had their annual conference and there was a physician from Texas who does a lot of research on placebo effect but more in um, health settings like this about what people believe in terms of what they're eating or what they're doing and how it impacts their health. And people who make decisions and are believing based off of this place of empowerment, uh, their, their um, lab markers, all of their biometrics, whether it's like heart rate variability, all these things that you can measure that are associated with health are better 
than someone who enters their daily habits from a place of fear of, oh my gosh, does this have this or what am I going to be exposed to? So it's to your point, science is actually saying this is one of the most critical things you can do is starting your day, starting your health journey saying, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to make choices that are going to empower me towards better health, even if that doesn't mean it's perfect, right? Because yes, we live on planet Earth. We're all going to have different exposures and challenges that we face every single day. But it starts with what you're believing here. And I like to say, yes, stress does. It's it's all in your head. At least it begins there. And sometimes it ends there too. I think it's something that I see often, and this is certainly within health and fitness, but crosses all industries and all aspects of life, is that when you start to learn something new, you start to get too much in the weeds about it. So I hear people who start to like, you know, listen to a couple health podcasts or follow some, you know, health people and they're like, oh my God, everything is killing me. I need to eat perfect, like organic everything and see this doctor and get this blood test and do this thing and do that thing. And everything bothers them. And they're all very concerned about what's going on. And then as that person goes through their evolution of understanding what's going on, it's like, ah, yeah, well, like my, this blood marker is like touched a little bit off, but like, you know, whatever. I didn't eat the organic banana today, but eh, it's okay. And so it's this, this overcompensation for stuff too, because then that you're causing more stress by trying to handle your stress, which is going back full circle. It's just all the same. And you're creating the thing that you are trying to offset. Yeah. And I think that it's the pendulum swing, right? Like, and I think we saw that even as the world grappled with a global pandemic that we had never dealt with before. We saw these like swings to extremes. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're seeing how we are settling into this balance that's really good of understanding what we can control and what we can't. And we have to find a rhythm in that gray area. What are some best strategies then for dealing with stress? And of course, this is you know a huge question that will have no exact perfect answer for every individual. But, but overall, what are some of your best suggestions of strategies to deal with the stresses of life? Yeah, it's a great question. So one, I think um, understanding that stress is a common denominator. Um, it's not abnormal for you to experience stress. So I think just kind of settling into that with yourself is a really good truth to remind yourself of. And then when I think about how we handle stress, again, I I love to take a data approach. And I think knowing your numbers and testing, um, not guessing, is a really empowering piece of the puzzle. So uh, you have a stress hormone called cortisol. And cortisol is more than just a stress hormone. Your body makes it. It's really critical for a lot of different functions. It actually helps set your 24-hour circadian cycle, um, things like your metabolism, um, immune system function, anti-inflammatory capacities, when you wake up in the morning, you know, when you go to sleep at night. So what you can do is you can actually measure your cortisol throughout the day. And you should have a natural cortisol curve. So it should rise in the morning when you wake up and then it naturally gradually goes down to almost zero around bedtime. So the first thing when we think about like, how do we handle stress? What do we do to manage stress? I would say, well, let's see where you're at on a stress spectrum. When we think about acute and chronic stress, this idea of how stressed out is your body over a period of time 
knowing that information is a great first place to start because what you do with all these different variables of things that we talk about when we uh, deal with stress really matters and we can get much more specific that way. And, you know, the other thing I think too is really important is like, why should you care about stress? Um, Because stress actually can make you really sick. It can lead to heart disease, high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, obesity, risk for diabetes, um, digestive issues, sleep problems, you know, immune system dysfunction. We even see stress and interactions with autoimmunity, which is a really big problem in our world today. So what can we do? Um, First and foremost, I would say looking at your nutrition. We've talked a little bit about that. Um, Macronutrients in terms of your protein your carbohydrates, your fats, those are really important when you're in uh, a chronic stress response that's altered. um, You tend to be more in a catabolic state, which means you're breaking down different uh, substances to kind of help your body deal with the stress in the moment. It's like a crisis place that you're in. And anabolic is the other side. It's the building side. It's, you know, when you're trying to build muscle, when you're balancing your hormones and, you know, you, you want more hormonal production, let's say of testosterone or uh, for women, estrogen and progesterone, you have to be in a more anabolic state for your body. And so things like protein, getting adequate protein while you're under stress, eating sufficient amounts of carbohydrates eating the right kinds of fats that are going to help with hormonal production, neurotransmitter production, um, are really, really key aspects of how you manage your stress. The other thing is micronutrients. When we think of nutrition, we talked about those. So those are vitamins and minerals and these different antioxidants. And your body uses more micronutrients when you're under stress, just across the board. And the way I think about it is an analogy of you got your house and it's winter time and you want to maintain 70 degrees inside, but it's 10 below outside. You have a you know polar vortex of cold that moves through. Well, your furnace is going to have to work a lot harder to keep your house at that 70 degrees versus when it's you know, 50 degrees outside and you have a, a warm front move through. And the same thing is true of like when we're under stress and we have these different types of stress that come in with different intensities, our body needs more of these micronutrients to be able to deal with that, like the furnace working harder. So what are some of those nutrients? Um, One thing that's really interesting is we burn through magnesium about uh, two times as much as we normally do when we're under stress. And especially high intense stress, whether it's acute or chronic, you have major, major need for magnesium. And you know, some signs of low magnesium would be like your eye twitching, you know, sometimes that will happen to me and that's calcium magnesium ratios get off and you all of a sudden have all this muscle contraction, things like heart palpitations, um, muscle cramps, whether that's during the day, or maybe you wake up with like a Charlie horse grabbing your leg in the middle of the night, feeling more anxious, uh, poor sleep. And that has to do with Uh, magnesium helps your body make a calming neurotransmitter called GABA. So if you don't have a lot of GABA, you're going to feel kind of more tense and have a harder time falling asleep while you're under stress. Um, B vitamins are also 
critically important um, to manage your stress response. They have to do with energy production, um, being able to utilize the food that you're eating to actually burn it um, as an energy source in the form of ATP. And then also all the neurotransmitters that your body is producing to kind of keep you going in a stress response is critically important that you get uh, adequate B vitamins. And then one of my other favorites is vitamin C uh, plays a really important role with cortisol regulation, uh, as well as being able to make enough of the neurotransmitters and modulate inflammation, kind of bring you to that great place of balance because vitamin C is an antioxidant. It's one of the many things that it does. Um, so nutrition, um, another one is sleep. I think of sleep when you're stressed out, sleep is your life raft to keep you from drowning. And sleep is a, a time that our, our brain and our body um, are active, but in different ways than when we're awake. And so it's very much a time that our body kind of consolidates memories, emotions, does a lot of repair. So if you're sleeping well, meaning quality and quantity, while you're under tremendous stress, it will keep you from going under. So that's the big life raft that I say, like grab on, put your life vest on, grab the little floaty and keep your head above water while you're really going through maybe the rough waves of life. And then another one that um, is really important that I, I think is I'm really excited that more people are talking about is light exposure and really seeing this beauty of going back to circadian health of the importance of light and darkness at the right times. So you really want to get out in the morning and get five to 10 minutes of morning sunlight. Even if it's cloudy, it still counts because your eyes have cells that actually perceive the type of light you're being exposed to that sets your daily circadian rhythm. And it's the same truth for in the evening, late afternoon, um, that you get uh, that type of light when the sun starts to set because it helps control your cortisol levels throughout the day so that you have more energy throughout the day with the morning light. And then it starts to tell your body as you go into the evening, it's time to make melatonin. We're going to have a good sleep rhythm tonight. So light's really important. And another big one is movement, uh, exercise, depending on where you're at in your stress response. And this is what's interesting about looking at cortisol levels. If you're in one of those first stages of alarm where your cortisol levels are higher throughout the day, higher than they should be doing a lot of intense exercise, like hit training is potentially going to make you worse, not better. Um, and then, you know, weightlifting, walking, uh, yoga, things like that are going to be much more restorative, especially when you're in that like hypervigilant state. What I like to see where it's helping your body be a little bit more therapeutic instead of making you go further along in a stress response. Um, and another really cool thing about exercise movement with stress, if you get outside in nature for 30 minutes, uh, you know, light exposure, be around trees, see birds, you know, different wildlife. That is better at lowering your cortisol levels than an afternoon nap. And this is what's neat about the science, right? Like where we're starting to understand like 
we're designed as humans to be outside, to be in nature, to ground ourselves, that it's really helpful for our stress. So the type of movement you do is really critical based off of where you're at in your stress response. And then, you know, the other thing is connecting with yourself and others is how I would define that final piece of recommendations for stress. So that can mean things like mindfulness, meditation, different types of breath work. If you're new to how do I kind of ground and connect with myself, I think breath work is really good. It's the least intimidating because it's very prescriptive. It's very immediate. You can move into things like um, meditation, mindfulness practices, um, and then also connecting with others is really big. I think one thing in our modern world that's hard, especially as we've moved to more of a digital world, is connecting to other human beings and finding a really good support network, especially if what you're going through is is weighty, right? And you need other people to kind of help you carry that burden, encourage you along your journey uh, is really important. So there is my, um, I guess, tips for how do you manage your stress while things that you can do across the board. Yeah, lots there. And thank you so much for, for, for sharing that because everyone should go back well, however many minutes that was, listen to the beginning of that whole thing as many times as you need. Yet all of those things should sound familiar to most people. And especially if you've listened to any previous episode of the podcast, these are not radical ideas like, oh my goodness, Sarah said this thing and I'm gonna, I am gotta go out and buy all this equipment and do all this stuff and read five textbooks just to learn how to go outside and exercise and eat good foods at the right time and all these things. One thing that I wanna highlight of that though is the cyclical nature of this. And I, and I just wanna reiterate this where the cortisol curve does spike in the morning and then naturally declines throughout the day. And many of us due to our inadequacies, if you will, of our lifestyle, that curve is disrupted where it is very low in the morning. And these are typically people who would be very groggy in the morning or not a morning person. It takes you forever to get your ass out of bed. And then you're like slowly, you know, you ramp up during the afternoon and then you have, you know, uh, tons of carbs for breakfast or for lunch. And then you crash in the afternoon and then you spike back up again. And then it's 9 PM and you're like wired. These are the things like that is the pure sign of a broken cortisol curve and maybe broken is a little bit too extreme of a word, but I'm not sure you can qualify that one for me, Sarah, but, but that's the, you know, pure sign of something's got to change. And so this is what most people live and it becomes quote unquote normal, although it's not at all normal. And there are some pretty simple things we can do to try and offset this, which are all the things that you just finished mentioning. Yeah. What's neat too, is if you can actually see your cortisol curve everybody's is very different, right? In, in terms of what's going on where. So if you have, for example, you talked about um, a blunted cortisol awakening response where your cortisol doesn't come up well in the morning. And that does mean, you know, you're groggy, uh, you don't feel so great. You hit this snooze, you know, 10 times. There's very specific things that you can do to improve that cortisol awakening response and sometimes that's the only thing that's really off with someone when you look at their pattern that they have. Or, for example, you mentioned, you know, like the night owl being awake at night, you know, that second wind at 9 p.m. A lot of times what that will be correlated with is a higher cortisol level in the evening than it should be because cortisol is a wakeful hormone. And if that's high, there's certain things that we can do to really work on lowering that in terms of your light exposure, meal timing, when you're exercising. 
So what's really neat is as you measure and you test, not guess, we can get really specific and prescriptive about what you're doing, when you're doing it. And then we can see those changes typically happen within two to three months. So again, like you said, the hopeful message is, well, we could say, oh my gosh, my cortisol curve, my stress response is broken. It's very fixable. And knowing where you're at on your stress spectrum um, and the type of stress archetype you have is really helpful to be able to heal faster and get back into balance faster. A lot of the things to do to help repair this cortisol curve also require some effort, like trying to go to bed early, like going outside, like exercising correctly, like changing your diet, whatever. But I think the supplementation part, and this is very like contrary to the way that I usually like to, you know, conduct myself and other people is like, you know, do the hard work. Don't, don't lean on the pills and the potions and the, and the magic, but it's the lowest hanging fruit where I've seen tremendous change in clients just from starting to take magnesium and magnesium alone. And that has been a, like a game changer. So I think for some people going that route might actually be the way to just get the ball rolling. It's the least effort. It's, it's probably the most costly financially, but least effort and fastest tangible effect. Would you agree with that? I would. And I think, you know, you bring up such a great point here of sometimes people feel so bad that it's hard to do those, that list of lifestyle things, right? They're so far down the hole of chronic stress. So supplementation is a really great way to kind of, again, grab, put your life vest on and be able to get your head above water enough where you can really start thinking about a comprehensive, you know, protocol of all these things you're doing. It's, I, I definitely encourage people to start in one place. And I think supplementation is really good one with the micronutrients and you know at routine we have this really amazing precision multi that we actually tailor exactly to you and we can dose down to the micro or milligram uh, for need and we do that even based off of your stress um, archetype in this cortisol curve and then the other side of it in terms of supplementation would be other supportive uh, ingredients that are more adaptogens adaptogenic uh, herbs, for example. So things like ashwagandha, uh, holy basil, you know, there's a whole list of all these different types of herbals that have been used, you know, in ancient medicine that basically help your body get back to that homeostasis and that balance with your cortisol faster than you'd be able to do on your own. So if you're too high, it'll help bring you down, let's say in the evening with your cortisol so you can go to sleep better. If you're low in the morning with your cortisol, it's going to help bump that up a little bit so you have energy. And so what we did at Routine is we created um, three different stress supplements that are based off of these stress archetypes and patterns of where people need support with their cortisol curve in terms of what's happening. So I absolutely agree. I think it's, you know, what we see is the cortisol curve starts to shift within six to eight weeks. If people are really consistent, even with that first step of supplementation, and then I always encourage, as you start to feel better, get better sleep, because then it's it's like that that next step adds so much momentum to really heal and find balance. Yeah, it's a bit of that that compounding effect, but you do need something just to get the ball the ball rolling. 
one, one thing that you brought up there with some of the the herbs and ashwagandha and whatnot, what is the actual mechanism that helps those things work? Because to my understanding, it's not like we have, you know, magnesium is a mineral or, or a substance, a molecule that exists in our body and is necessary for life. Ashwagandha is not a molecule that exists in our body that is necessary for life, but it does help with all these things. So does it, is there something else in it that is that we do have a receptor for of some sort, or does it help with the delivery and uptake of all of these other good things? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. So mechanism of action is always so interesting that we're still really understanding in this like plant world of all these compounds. So there's active ingredients in plant compounds that really give their therapeutic effects. And for ashwagandha and a lot of the adaptogens are actually acting on the HPA axis So that is in your brain, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. There's also thyroid and our um, sex glands as well, that this system works. It operates like a family and talks to each other. So what happens is with adaptogens, it acts all the way up in the brain to optimize that communication and the different um, secreting hormones that are released in the brain and how that's going to impact the adrenal glands, how they're making cortisol when they're making cortisol and really optimizing that uh, feedback loop and communication with the brain. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that probably clears up a lot for a lot of people because we hear things like, Oh, so-and-so herb, so-and-so vegetable, whatever is good for you. It's like, well, what does that, what does that mean? I don't have a receptor for cucumbers in my body. That's not a thing. It's (laughs) what, what is it in the cucumber or whatever vegetable is good for me? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other really, yeah, the interesting thing I think that I'm so curious about that we're just starting to uncover is the microbiome and the communication with, you know, this really organ of bacteria that lives in our digestive tract mainly and how it impacts the communication with our brain and our entire body. So I think as we continue to learn, we'll see there's some mechanism of action there and not only with micronutrients, but even some of these plant compounds of how it's positively impacting the microbiome to impact our stress response. Yeah. You, you took the next kind of line of conversation right out of, right out of my mouth there. But I think that's again, going backwards, you know, a little bit in terms of everyone's digestive issues. It's like, why, why is our gut so, so messed up and why can't we handle these foods and what is the relationship? Why do we feel bad when we eat just McDonald's or any fast food. It's like, this is not, this is not rocket science to figure out that this is important, but it is quite difficult to figure out why it's important and how to actually fix it if it's broken, so to speak. So does, do you do any testing at routine for gut microbiome or is it, or are the impacts of it shown in the other testing that that happens? Yeah, that's a great question. We do not currently do any microbiome testing. I think microbiome testing is also in its infancy just to mm-hmm. qualify that we're still learning a lot about like what's the best way to really assess a healthy microbiome. Uh, but we do uh, assess microbiome health and digestive health through the cortisol test. So what's really interesting is if you have an altered stress response, it directly impacts digestion through multiple ways. So when you're in a fight or flight response, your cortisol level goes high, um, you actually divert blood flow away from your digestive tract. So that in and of itself means less energy to really rest, digest, heal that side of your nervous system. But for this, um, it's digesting, right? Your nutrients. So you have less stomach acid, you have less digestive enzymes in terms of bioflow and pancreatic enzymes. So you're going to see more malabsorption trends that happen over time with stress. 
Uh, cortisol, higher cortisol is also an adrenaline, which is another stress hormone, is going to cause faster transit time. So you're going to see things speed through the GI tract faster. Um, sometimes this is why people, I call it the nervous poops, one way or another, people describe what happens when they have a lot of stress. And it's because all of that adrenaline and cortisol cause more contraction of those muscles to move things through faster. You have less digestion. And that also impacts the microbiome because there's less time for even these little probiotics to feed off of the things that you've consumed. So I like to say, if you get your stress response right, a lot of times the digestive gut pieces of the puzzle will fall into place. Um, cortisol and adrenaline, when they get too high, actually can cause leaky gut as well, where you have these tight junctions of all the little cells in your intestines. If you think about um, you know, tile in your bathroom and the um, little grout in between seals all of that together. And what happens when you're stressed out, um, those open up. And so you start to have things that cross over in your bloodstream that cause more sensitivity to different things. Like all of a sudden your immune system's tagging gluten and egg and dairy. And it's like, I'm so stressed out and now I'm sensitive to all these foods. Why does that happen? Because you actually have an immune system response over time with chronic stress that all starts in the gut with gut integrity. So heal your stress response. A lot of times that will actually heal your gut. And that's the stance we really take right now in terms of the biggest thing that's going to move the needle for gut and digestive health. Yeah. I'm so happy you said that because I think it really is a testament to controlling what you can and then letting the chips fall as they may afterwards. Like we can't control all the variables. And like you said, we currently don't really have good widespread testing or understanding of gut microbiome tests. And my understanding is that like the best way to test it is through like fecal samples, which I don't think people are going to be sending their poop in the mail all over the place and getting that tested. It's probably not, not like not, a, we got to figure out something better to get that widespread. But, but until then, um, if you fix one thing, you know, you fix one big thing, it's probably going to fix or at least help some of the other aspects of it, right? Another 100%. thing that I kind of want to touch on here is is the interaction as well between our levels of stress, our gut microbiome, and our mental health, which has been a increasing topic of conversation and rightfully so over the past several years and I think skyrocketed through through the pandemic. And where, you know, a lot of us were in times of stress yet snacking and Uber eating and, you know, just, you know, burying our feelings in food and alcohol and other substances. What are some of your thoughts on, on the relationship between like these responses, these stress responses and how it impacts our mental health and how can we, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, are they related where if you fix the stress response, mental health will improve or is it the opposite or are they both at the same time? And of course, not a blanket statement because everyone's different, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Your altered stress response will directly uh, impact your mental health. Meaning when you have an altered stress response and your cortisol can be high, it can be low, it can be high and low. There's all kinds of different patterns that happen. You are more at risk for anxiety, depression, all, and, and the gamut of mental health disorders that happen, even things like ADD, ADHD. Uh, when you're really stressed out, you have a lot of cortisol, your brain 
kind of expands all of the information it takes in to try to help you, which is very much it feels like, you know, an ADD, ADHD brain of like, oh my gosh, I can't focus on anything. That's really common in a stress response. So if you can handle and get a handle on your stress response, as the first place you start to grasp onto something that's going to make a big difference for your mental health, it's absolutely starting with healing your stress response. And by that, I really mean healing this 24-hour cortisol, melatonin um, cycle, uh, this circadian cycle that you have, will have a tremendous impact on your mental health. And I say circadian cycle too, because it's not just when you're awake, right? That's going to impact your mental health. It's also how you sleep in terms of quality and quantity, what's happening in the brain. Your brain detoxifies while you sleep. It consolidates, again, memories, all the different things that you have, you know, even trauma. Your brain is literally healing while you sleep at night. So the better you sleep, the better your mental health is going to be during the day. And that's very much supported by a lot of really, really good science that we have. To take that even one step further to, to people who might, you know, scoff at that and be like, no, you've got to, you've only got to go to therapy and that's the only way to, to deal with your mental health. And I would say that, yes, you should do that. But if we really think about what that is, that's also connecting with yourself, connecting with others, doing something to help you relax, to fall asleep. And so that is one other tool in the toolbox of ways to start to uh, fix this sort of stress response, this circadian stress, stress, losing my words, this circadian stress uh, rhythm that we are, we are trying to fix with, with, with regards to mental health and physical health and all of the other things. So I don't, so I just want to highlight that as something that people shouldn't look over because it's all one and the same. It's just different ways to, to get at it. And so it, for maybe for someone starting to really work on their nutrition, finding out what your, your cortisol curve actually looks like is the way to go. So maybe for someone else, it's starting with talk therapy with a registered therapist and whatever it is for you, but you're finding one way to enter this cycle of trying to heal yourself and by whatever means you need. I love that you bring that up too, because absolutely it's important to get therapy and it should be something that is as normal as testing your cortisol, you know, that (laughs) when we need the support, we need it from all those different angles. And I love that you also said, whatever entry point is most natural for you and a place that you can really start, start there. You don't have to do it all at once. And I, you know, the best therapists are also going to eventually encourage you to do this side of things to really heal your stress response as well, because they're all synergistic together. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. What does then the, the onboarding look like, um, for someone coming to routine says, I'm, you know, I'm in what happens from there? What things are you testing for? What's the logistical process look like? Yeah. So for our stress system that we have, the place that people start is they come in and they actually test first. So we really want to be driven by data. We want to leverage data to empower people to make the best decisions about their health and that the information is actually in their hands. And we just are a guide to help them and really show them the truth of what's going on in their bodies. So the first thing they're going to do is they're going to get a three-point salivary cortisol test. So you get to do it at home. And it's you just 
spit in a little tube uh, morning, afternoon, evening, and you send that back in the mail. About um, 10 to 14 days later, you get your results in terms of what your curve is, and we actually give you a stress archetype so that you can understand where you're at on this stress curve. And then what we do is we actually put together a personalized plan to conquer your stress. And it includes all the different things that we talked about today. So it's very comprehensive in terms of macronutrients, micronutrients, movement, light exposure, connection to others, mindfulness, meditation. And then we also offer um, consultations, one-on-one support, so that one, you really understand what's going on, and two, you have support along the way um, with a human that you can connect with, as well as all these different tools, um, whether that be sometimes it's supplementation, people start there, which we really encourage We see a lot of movement in terms of the cortisol curve improving in six to eight weeks. Um, But as well as things like, hey, do you know that you can download a a light meter on your phone and you can actually measure the lux amount of light that you're exposed to morning and night or meal timing, right? It can be sometimes these little tiny tweaks that make all the difference. And our goal with our stress system is that we're really helping people discover what a healthy routine is for them in that 24-hour cycle. And um, and then we also really encourage retesting because we don't want to just throw something out into the world and say, good luck. <laughs> I hope you feel better, right? Which is what a, a lot of the different things that are happening out there are. We really want to create a journey where someone can test They can implement a very specific protocol for them and even do a little self-experimentation of this works really well for me, this doesn't as much, and then we can actually show them their improvement of results over time. And we actually have technology on our back end that as you test and as you interact with our platform more, your personalized plan, supplementations, all the things you're using actually get smarter and better over time to really accomplish your goals. So again, we're leveraging health data and all of these different tools that people can use to really empower them on this journey towards optimal health, improving their health span. And it's really exciting to see stories of People, for example, their mental health improving, their sleep improving, you know, my digestive issues are better. I get to see it every single day. And it's it's very exciting to hear the stories of improved health. It's always awesome to hear improvements in areas where people didn't originally come to you and ask about that. Like they may have come for, you know, because they can't fall asleep at night or they just feel stressed and that whatever that means to them. But then they find that their mental health is improving, their gut health is improving. Like, oh, I didn't even know that this was going to be a thing, but this is awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I yeah. think another another thing is that's so important is the is the personalization and the consultation aspect, because other than without that, it's almost just like a, here's a bunch of knowledge. Here's a bunch of things that you you could or should do, which is you know, all the things that we talked about this whole, you know, past conversation, right? And so implementing those for the individual is typically the hardest part, right? I think a lot of health is, or lack of health is not for a lack of knowledge. It's for a lack of action or implementation of the things that we all know that we should be doing. So the consultation aspect is is the most interesting, and I'd imagine the, the biggest difference maker above all. It is. Yeah. And it's, you know, we really love to take the guesswork out of it, right? It's like this taking the chaos of all the information that's out there in the world and really dialing it down to what do you need to do 
in this specific moment. So there's no more guesswork. You know exactly what to do. Someone is guiding you through that. And then we also, you know, provide the proof that what you're doing is actually working. And so for me, it's looking at connecting all the different puzzle pieces that are most important to put together for your health story so that you can be successful. The test retest is awesome as well, because some of these things are not always tangible that quickly, but they are moving in the right direction. And so adherence is one of the number one things that need to be done for everything. And so if you don't feel better instantly, but you know, things are trending in the right direction, it's like, no, we're doing the right things. You've got to keep going. And here's proof, objective proof of it, rather than just listen to me. I am the guru master and I'm telling you what to do. Like that's not, that's not good enough for most people. You've got to put some, some numbers to it, something tangible to it. If that feeling of improvement is not immediately there. And that will of course vary across, across people. Some people will have like a one night turnaround. You take a couple magnesium tablets and like, Oh my God, I feel like a new person. And some people won't feel that right away. But of course, this is where the individual approach, uh, I think supersedes everything. Yeah. And the testing and retesting is also, it's like great accountability and motivation too of like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm going to get retested. So I've got to keep doing the things that I know I need to be doing to be successful because my test is in two weeks. And, you know, so there's, there's that part of it too, of it's encouraging to see your data and what your plan is. And then it's also some accountability of, okay, my results are coming up and I want them to look better. So I'm more motivated to do the things that I need to be doing on a daily basis. Yeah. That aspect is huge. And especially in fitness, right? It's like we, I have my clients weigh in or send, send progress photos or, you know, various other measurements. And sometimes it's like, I don't actually care about the measurement. It's just like, I know that if you know that you need to send me those things, then you're going to stick to what we said you're going to do. And it's just proof that like, okay, you have been doing it. Or if the the measurement, the check-in, the whatever next data point comes in and it's down or off or in the wrong direction, it's like, well, did you do the things that we agreed that you were going to do? No, then we shouldn't be surprised by this result. So let's double down and, and keep it going, right? It's just that yeah. convincing people and not convincing, that's almost too strong of a word, but empowering people to do the things that they that they should be doing and that they know that they should be doing, just getting it done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think the other exciting thing too, that we're moving into with our stress system that we're doing is we're going to connect real-time wearable data. And I think that's another oh, piece awesome. of accountability and also encouragement when you see, for example, your heart rate variability start to improve over time where it's like, okay, I'm doing these things. I tested, I know where I'm at you know, I'm in this chronic stress response. My heart rate variability isn't great. I've been doing these different things for two weeks now. And oh my gosh, my heart rate variability is already so much better. Those are things too, with that real-time information that empowers you to keep going. Yeah. And and that for people, I can testify to that, that that is a very fast one that repeats or, or that fixes itself. I can say that at the beginning of the pandemic, I was you know working in a busy gym and I was sleeping five hours a night on a good night and up all day and busy and whatever. My HRV was like in the, in the garbage. And then as soon as the pandemic hit and like gyms were closed and everything was closed and I was sleeping like full, you know, nine hour nights cause there's nothing to do. It's like, you can, you can see on my aura scores when the pandemic started just based on, <laughs> yeah. just based on that alone. And it was like within two nights and it just shifted and then stayed that way. So that's, that's another great, that's another great one. Does that take a lot of work on the tech side though, to integrate those things? That, that sounds like it a huge does. Task, yeah. yeah. We have, we have an incredible tech team on the back end that powers routine, um, with all 
all of the information that we get and putting it together in an algorithm that then interprets and, you know, puts that as valuable insights and actions in terms of your health. So yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And your point about two nights, right. And your heart rate variability went up. I just want to reiterate the point of our bodies are so resilient. And if we do the right things at the right time in the right way, we see incredible outcomes. What a beautiful statement (laughs) and very true. Um, Sarah, I want to try and let you I want to ask you if there's anything else that you want to kind of leave the people with here in closing. We'll rattle off, you know, contact info and whatever. But this has been an amazing conversation. So thank you very much for sharing. Is there anything that you feel like, you know, we've we've left out? No, I think this has been really great. And I think the biggest thing is if you're someone who's dealing with stress, you feel like stress is impacting your mental, physical, emotional health. You can absolutely get help. Take a first step. Routine is a place that we want to give people information, empower them to leverage their data, to optimize their health. Come check it out and, you know, um, try out our stress system. And I know that you'll um, be encouraged by the results that you see and what you feel. Beautiful. I'm, I'm very excited for it. Very excited for it for others. I think it's going to make a really big impact. And we just we need so much more of this. People are hurting and we don't need to hurt anymore. So, you know, if this has spoken to you, definitely check it out. And Sarah, where can people, where can people log in and find stuff and contact info, website, social media? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just routine, R-O-O-T-I-N-E.co. And um, you can look at decreased stress up in the tab is where you can look at our stress system. It is new and still in beta. So we're offering people that are listening to join us um, to be some of the first to be in our stress program. Um, You can also look at our precision multi in terms of personalizing your nutrition if that's a place that you'd be interested in starting too. And um, just routine, uh, same spelling on all social media. You'll find us there as well and connect with us. We'd love to have a conversation, answer questions, and be there as a support for you. Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes as well for anyone, for everybody listening, but it's routine, R-O-O-T-I-N-E instead of with the U. Sarah, thank you very much for for joining us today and for sharing with us. I, I greatly appreciate your time and the knowledge and all the things that you've shared with us. It's it's very valuable to many people. And so I hope that people take this uh, to heart, really implement the things that we're talking about, get, check out routine and share this episode with a friend because I think that's the, the, this, this is the best way to spread this and help people to, to stop hurting and live a better life overall. So... Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Routine everywhere on social media, everything in the show notes. Um, Share the podcast, like, subscribe, review, whatever, all that stuff. And uh, that's it. Go outside. Be a good person. We'll see you soon.